All right, let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. Uh, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If I could get the lights now. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let's pray together and dive into God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the gathering we have here and the gathering we have through our brothers, with our brothers and sisters who are live streaming, and we thank you for calling all of us uh, to draw near to you on this Lord's Day. Would you speak to us through your word, convict us through your word, feed us our daily bread, our, the spiritual bread that we need uh, to feed upon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm teaching Owen, my, uh, our seven-year-old, um, basketball. That's um, one of my new summer projects this year. I can't play full-court basketball with, uh, with the brothers yet, so uh, I'll play a little one-on-one with my son. And the first sort of milestone um, that he reached was dribbling up to 10 times in a row without losing the ball. And, and he got to that pretty okay, and then he eventually moved up to dribbling, dribbling 20 times in a row without losing the ball. Now he's at a point where he's struggling to get over 30, 30 dribbles without losing the ball. And the, the main reason why he struggles to get over 30 is really not so much what he's not doing or doing with his hands and feet. It's what he's doing with his eyes. Um, after about the 20th dribble, he will begin to wander away. His eyes would begin to wander away to some random spot on the floor, and then the ball would either hit his foot or, or get out of control. So I would have to remind him now and then, Owen, eyes on the ball. Eyes on the ball. That is the challenge for him. Not what he's doing with his hands, what he's doing with his eyes. Now, when it comes to the, the Christian life, there's a parallel. There's a parallel. Uh, we, we tend to think being Christian or being a faithful Christian means we focus on what we do with our hands or feet, our behavior, right? But strangely, the Bible never presents to us our behavioral way of life as the main thing, never. Our behavioral life is not the matter of first importance. Time and time again, the Bible reminds us the thing of first importance, the greatest importance is keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, remember this too, before we jump into the text. Remember that there are not one, not two, but six, six warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And why is that? Why would that be necessary? Um, what do you do when you notice a friend who's wandering away from Jesus? Remember the story I told you about my elementary school teacher who had a great influence on me? He was a devout Christian. Um, 
but he fell away from the Lord. What do you do when you have a friend like that that you notice is falling, drifting away from Jesus? You would hopefully go alongside them and gently warn them. Hey, come back. Don't leave. Don't, don't turn away from your Lord. Don't give up. Right? And imagine having to do that not once, not twice, six times. Okay. Uh, that would be a pretty serious case, wouldn't you say? The author of Hebrews warns the Jews here, the Jewish Christians, six times throughout the book of Hebrews, because they are seriously falling away from the Lord. It was becoming a serious problem, hence the, the warnings and the reminders. To what? To keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, right? Not on the Old Testament prophets from long ago, not on temple worship, not on the angels, not even on Moses. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And, and the way that the author of Hebrews sums it up is this way in verse 1. Consider him. Consider Jesus. And what I want to look at with you today is, okay, what that means, the meaning of considering Jesus, and then the cost of truly considering Jesus, and lastly, the power we get from considering Jesus, okay? The meaning of considering Jesus, the cost of considering Jesus, and the power we get from considering Jesus, all right? All right, here we go. Number one, the meaning of considering Jesus. Uh, The Greek word there is katanoeo. It's actually a pretty fun word to say, katanoeo. Uh, Fixing your eyes on something without being distracted, without looking away. That's what it's meant by consider. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Don't ever turn away. And, And that can, of course, have a lot of implication, but the primary implication I want you to just focus on today is this. When it comes to the quality of your faith, the quality of your Christian walk, You are not to focus on you. You are not to consider how are you doing today. You are to consider Jesus. Long before you consider you, consider him. And if you don't do that, you drop the ball. You you lose it. You lose your grip on what Christianity is all about. Verse 2 says this, that Jesus was the one faithful to God. Hear that? Jesus was the one faithful to God. Consider that. Before you consider, have I been faithful to him? Have I been good enough? Our tendency is to to do the opposite of what's being encouraged here. We fixed our eyes on anything or anyone but Jesus. Maybe maybe there's a great example of a saint, uh, a brother or sister who just exemplifies for you just what Christian faithfulness really looks like. And we think that's neutral and a good thing when we look at that and we go, I I should imitate more of that. When when that's really running the risk of looking to what is Christian and neglecting the first syllable of that word, Christ. And the problem really surfaces when when you run with that for a while. You go with that for a while. It leads us to one or two outcomes. One, uh, when you successfully imitate that Christian role model, what happens? You become prideful, right? Because you're basing your status before God on your successes. The other outcome is when you fail to imitate that Christian role model, uh, you despair. Why? 
because you're basing your status before God on your failures. What does I'm good enough and I'm such a failure have in common? What do those things have in common? They both come from a place of complete, total self-preoccupation. It's thinking it's all about how I'm doing. It's self-centeredness that bases your entire identity on your successes, and it's also self-centeredness that bases your entire identity on your failures. What does it mean to consider Jesus then? Okay, Not considering first and foremost whether I've been faithful enough, whether I've done enough. The answer is no. <laughs> you'll never be faithful enough. You'll never have accomplished enough. But considering whether he's been faithful to you, and that answer is always yes. We always have our yes in Jesus. You know, we live in a, this is a challenge for us because we live in a culture that promises the faithful outcomes of meritocracy. Meritocracy, where uh, it's this idea where if you have ability plus effort, right, and you, you, you stick to that equation long enough, you'll be successful. Ability, effort. But what studies are actually showing is that that promise isn't true at all. There was this article uh, from a few years ago in The Atlantic titled The False Promise of Meritocracy. And in that article, the writer points to a study that was done by MIT showing that the companies, the really cutting-edge companies out there that are saying, we are so committed to a fair, merit-based hiring system. What they found is that those very companies show actually less merit-based outcomes. Right? Turns out the, the, the ability and effort equation they don't pan out, right? The people upstairs, uh, quote-unquote upstairs, they do not evaluate people fairly based on their merits because all kinds of subjectivity and biases come into play. So in conclusion, the writer says, quote, Americans believe this righteousness or rightness of merit meritocratic ideals, but that belief, um, research shows, that uh, that belief hasn't gotten us there at least not yet. Meaning, if you center your life around this idea, right, ability plus effort, I'll be successful. If you center your life around that, um, you will not get the payoff that you've been expecting. And, and I hope this is not us because the author of Hebrews have, has been telling us that 2,000 years before that Atlantic article, before that MIT study, if you center your life on anything other than Christ, you will end up bankrupt. Okay? If you're not fixing your eyes on Jesus, but on some other merit-based system that evaluates how well you're doing or how poorly you're doing and tells you it's all about your ability plus your efforts, right, you'll come out bankrupt. So, right, what are we to do? Kata noeo Jesus, consider Jesus. His promise is actually true. His, he, he is actually faithful. He will actually see you based on a perfect merit system, and that merit is of Christ. When he sees you, he sees the merit of Christ. His merit become yours. Notice how it says in the beginning of verse 1, how the, the author is addressing them. Holy brothers. What does that mean? Okay. That means we, by our faith in Christ, our big brother, who represents us, who took on literal flesh and blood to represent us, 
we are already holy. By His word, we've been made holy. That's what we are, brothers of Jesus, which is the ancient way of saying brothers and sisters, and therefore children of God. Consider that. How this status is not something for you to achieve with your works, but to be received by faith. Not to be achieved, but to be received. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what considering Jesus means, primarily considering this gospel. Receiving him, resting in him alone. Right? That's what we, we've all stated that in our membership vows. That's what we are. People who, who are receiving Christ, resting in him alone for our salvation. That's what considering him really, truly means. It doesn't mean simply, yes, I think about him now and then. Yes, with my lips I acknowledge Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But you look to him and his merit alone in evaluating your value and your identity, not to your performance, not to your grades, not to your career path, not to your relationships. Christ alone. That's what considering him means. Okay, this comes at a cost. If you really want to truly consider Jesus and not have, you know, once in a while quiet times where you give him a little thought, but truly base your life and your value on Christ and consider him that way, you have to pay a price. There's a cost of fixing your eyes on Jesus this way. Uh, one of the reasons why Hebrews is such a difficult book is because the author can pack a lot in one verse, and you can take a while to unpack everything, and verse 1 is that kind of a verse today. Okay, you have to unpack more. It says here, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, what is this heavenly calling uh, referring to, that we share in this heavenly calling? It's a calling to enter into their heavenly home. And the word share in is referring to this concept of inheritance that the Jews were very familiar with. They, they were, uh, they are offspring of Abraham, therefore they were expecting to inherit the land that God had promised Abraham and his offsprings. But notice here, right, this is fascinating. God doesn't say, you who share in the land of Canaan. It says, you who share in this heavenly calling. Heavenly calling. And he, he doubles down on this later on in Hebrews chapter 11 where he says, your forefathers, including Abraham, your forefathers desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Not a physical land, but a heavenly land. Meaning what? Even though God had a, a specific purpose in leading the Israelites out of Egypt and leading them to the land of Canaan, that was never meant to be their ultimate destination. Okay? Their ultimate destination is the new heavens and the new earth. New Jerusalem that God brings down to us, prepared for all the nations, as it says in Revelation 21. That's the heavenly home of God's people. Okay? Why is this important? The author of Hebrews knows. He knows what he's doing. He knows how this can trigger his audience, Jewish Christians, right? Their feelings when they are not only the offspring of Abraham, but currently under Roman occupation. Really desiring, more than anything else, liberation and dwelling in their own land. So he knows that this is going to, right, be offensive to some of his, if not all of his audience. But get this. Okay, 
give, if, if it was given the author of Hebrews, let's say, if he had the 21st century sentiment and, oh, let's not, let's not get offensive and start triggering people, he would have backed off at this point, right? He takes this even further, okay? And he brings in Moses. Moses, the prophet who led them out of Egypt, gave them the law, established them as a nation. That guy. What does he have to say about him? He's not the goat. He's not the greatest of all time. There's one who is greater. Verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. He's doubling down on the offense he's giving to the Jews. Don't you dare begin to compare Jesus to Moses and elevate or even put them on an equal footing. There's no competition. Okay, why is he doing this? Again, it's a warning in the context of the struggle that they were having. They were, they were reminiscing, romanticizing about their homeland and their great prophet Moses, the good old days. The good old days when they had a great human leader. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you want to consider Jesus? You got to abandon that. The thing that you're feeling most secure right now about, the thing that's giving you the most comfort that is in Christ, you need to abandon that. Abandon that security. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, considering him means identifying what else you've been fixing your eyes on and beginning to recognize their weakness, their inability to truly save you and seeing Jesus as the superior Savior, the one and only Savior, not adding him to a list of saviors, writing the name of Christ in big giant red letters all over the page, that's considering Jesus. Remember the analogy that Jesus gave about how new wine should, should not go into old wineskin and uh, you don't patch an unshrunk cloth on an old garment? Okay, what was the meaning of that? It meant this, that you cannot take Jesus and patch him onto your current way of life. You can't just invite Jesus into your life and expect him to keep everything the same. It's as if he never entered your life. You know, I, I think one good example of this is you know, the whole Marie Kondo thing where right, as soon as she enters your home, what starts happening? Right, you start throwing out a bunch of stuff. Right? And if that doesn't happen, it's as if I mean, she's never really been to your place. If Jesus has really been to your life, your heart, he doesn't sit still with you with your pre-existing priorities and goals and ambitions. He starts throwing them out. That's the cost. That's the cost of truly considering Jesus. You get completely reoriented and rewired to focus on his kingdom, his priorities, his goals, his preoccupations, not yours. It's going from, Lord, here's what I want. If you grant me this, I'll serve you. Lord, you're what I want. And if it is your will, I'll go. If it's not, I'll stay. Give me your heart, your desire, your wisdom, so I would obey you and follow after you every step that I take. That's considering 
Jesus. It comes at a cost. I know you've heard this before, right? You've heard, if you grew up in this, you've heard this before. But I wonder if you connected these dots, okay? This is what truly considering Jesus looks like in your everyday life. Apart from you abandoning, foregoing your former securities, comforts, foundations, identity markers, and merit systems, you will drift away from the Lord. If you're not kata noeo, considering Jesus this way, you will fall away. The reason why pastors say, read your Bible, pray, um, go to community group, join our Bible study, this and that, it is not so you would check off a religious to-do list or please the your, your spiritual leaders or anything like that, it, it's really so that you would consider Jesus better. You would acquire God's script for your life more than the script you're getting from the other merit systems. The cost of truly considering Jesus is denying, denying that other thing, which if you've identified yourself with long enough will feel like you're denying yourself. That's why this is painful sometimes. Denying yourself, carrying your cross, following Jesus, that's the cost of following, and that's the cost of considering him truly. Nothing was more foundational to the Jewish people than their land and Moses. And yet, here they are, being reminded right, of that theme in, in this book of Hebrews. Jesus is still better. Jesus is still better. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, okay, like the song says. And then the things of this world, the things that you prioritize for so long and held on to as if they can give you true peace and joy and identity and security in this life, those things will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There's a cost. And there's also this power that enables you to continue living and following after him. That's the last point. The power we get from considering Jesus and and it is this, when you consider Jesus this way, um, your house becomes impenetrable. Your house becomes a house that's built on a rock. Um, take a look at verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Okay, listen to that. Christ is faithful over what? God's house? And you are his house. He is faithful, in other words, to you. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, if we're trusting in him by faith. See, what you will ultimately find as you fix your eyes on Jesus is that he is fixing his eyes on you to build you up as the house of God to be the very dwelling place of God. He's, meaning he's shaping you in such a way that even God in his divine perfection would not change a thing when he enters into your life, when he sees you. And you're going, wait, do you even know, pastor, what's in my heart? Okay. Like what was in my heart last night? And the pastor would then say, what? What would the pastor say? There you go again, considering you. You're considering you. Consider Jesus who clothes you 
covers you with his righteousness. Consider him. Stop considering yourself. Consider your Lord who dwells inside you, who sanctifies you, who purifies you, who cleanses you, who covers you entirely with his righteousness. This is, by the way, the reason why the author identifies Jesus as the apostle and the high priest, okay? That's not just throwing a few cool nicknames at Jesus. Let's just call him a few extra cool things. No, that's not what it's. The word apostle means sent one, okay? The The one who speaks for God to man, brings a message from God to man. High priest is someone who speaks to God for man, right? So opposite directions, The author is saying Jesus is both. Now, here's the significance of that. Every other religious system out there, every other religious system provides us with a one-way street. It's a one-way street. God goes halfway, you meet him the the other half. Okay, it's like God is Morpheus. It's like red pill, blue pill. And then you're Neo. Okay, I'll take the red pill or the blue pill, right? That's pretty much the gospel in every other religion. Not in Christianity. That is not Christianity, guys. Jesus, the Son of God, leads us in both directions. Jesus, the apostle, the apostle, brings us the message from God, the good news to, to us. And Jesus, he, he takes the red pill that we can't take on our behalf. And he doesn't simply invite us to God. Hey, cons- you know, Give this a thought. Maybe it's a good idea to... No, he, he gives us the merit that brings us, actually brings us to him. He leads us to the Father as well. He gives us not only the message of the gospel, but the faith to receive the gospel and respond to it as well. He is both the apostle and the high priest. In other words, he's all you need. He is all that you need. And if you really grasp this, if you really understand this, that's what I mean by you being a house built on a rock, you being impenetrable and unshakable. Pressed, yes, but not crushed, right? Persecuted, yes, not destroyed. Struck down, yes, but not abandoned, right? Even when you stumble, even when you're failing, even when you sin, even when you suffer loss, when you're rejected, when you fail, by all the world's standards, you fail, right? Your house stands, why? You've trust in your faithful Savior who is working in you, building you up. He is the builder of the house, and you are that house. And none of this, none of this world can undo what he's doing in you. Why? Because he overcame the world. None of this can undo what he's doing in you. He is bringing you to completion. He is making you the house of God. And in fact, all that you suffer in this life will only contribute and add to, not subtract from, but add to your completion. I think C.S. Lewis has the perfect um, excerpt and illustration that I think captures this. So let me read the, the excerpt for you. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? 
The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. God is working in you in this way, not fixing the little things and help you get along with your pre-existing agendas, but to completely renovate you, turn you into the very house of God. And everything that's happening in your life, everything that's not happening in your life is for this purpose, and you would know that this is, this is the purpose when you consider Jesus. When you fix your eyes upon Jesus, and that's the power that enables you to live, live through things, everything in your life. This is the power you need to live through a global pandemic. This is the power you need to live through civil unrest. Not counting on these things eventually will be over, right? We'll, we'll go back to normal. That, that is not hopefulness. Our hope is this. Our power is this. Whatever is happening around us, God is using to build me up as his house. That's our hope. And therefore, we are not hoping in normalcy. What is that anyway? Okay. This empowers us to step into the new normal, to be all things for all people, for the sake of enjoying this, enjoying what God is doing in my life right now. How is he using this to continue to build me? How is he using even the worst failures I've ever made to build me up by his grace to be the house of God. And, and he asks you to just do one thing. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter what the cost, keep your eyes on him. And you'll live with his power. Remember this last quote, and I'll close with this, from Robert uh, Murray McShane. For every one look at your sins, take ten looks at Christ. And I think that goes for everything else. You know, for every anxious thought you have, Consider 10 of Christ's promises. Every moment of fear you experience, consider his power 10 times, 10 displays of his power in the scriptures. For every time someone fails you, consider how he has not failed you 10 times over. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Consider him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, the Apostle, and the High Priest. Help us to look to him and not merely give him a passing thought, but put him at the very center of all of our attention with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Make our lives all about him, even at the cost of, Lord, abandoning and moving away from the previous things that we have built our life upon, built our identity upon, before the storm hits and we learn this the hard way, God, would you be merciful to us so that we would shift now our focus to you and build, start building our house upon the rock. And really, it's really seeing the work you're doing. It's the building work you're doing and resting in that. And that is our work, is to believe and to trust. And from that trust, to obey and follow would you work this in us through the power of your Holy Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.